So um, today, be a friend. Jesus challenged his followers to train people in this way of life. This way of life. Train them. And then Jesus went on and, and spent his life in step with others. And so what we've done is we, we've looked at the life of Paul in creating this and how Paul um, walked arm in arm with Barnabas. He and Barnabas were like, they were inseparable until they separated, right? That's how friendship goes. But they did ministry together. They walked arm in arm together. They fought for each other. They fought with each other. But they were, they were the kind of epitome of biblical friendship. And scripture is plain about friendship. It isn't always easy, but it's essential. And we're not talking about our culture's friendship. We're talking about true friendship. Because we, if we're honest, have a shallow culture that, that kind of promotes shallow connection. And so we friend people that we haven't seen in 20 years. Uh, we friend people we've only met once. We have online friends. We have followers and fans and friends. And I looked at my wife's Facebook page and she has 1,220 friends. She does not have 1,220 friends, right? You couldn't have 1,220 friends. She has them. They're, they're listed on this. You can go and go through all of them. She has like 12 friends. And of those, she probably has fewer that she's like arm in arm, walking through life, totally honest, let's do this together with kind of friends. So we want to do one thing today is redeem that word. We want to consider that uh, social media is what it is, and that's okay. It's shallow connections and a personal highlight reel, and there's a place for that. But, but the friendship we're talking about today is the stuff that never makes it on social media. It's the stuff that gets seen in the shadows. It's the stuff that goes on behind the scenes. Real life requires that we walk with others. And so when I ask you, when I say, you know, who are these people in your life that you are walking with, that you're arm in arm with, that if they came and told you something that was uncomfortable, you wouldn't punch them, you'd thank them. Who are those people? Who comes to mind? A true friendship requires honesty. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6 says it this way, better is open rebuke than hidden love. The Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. You can call this your spinach in your teeth friend. You have a friend like that? Have you ever left somewhere? You've been with somebody, you hung out, you had lunch with them, you get in the car, you look in the rearview mirror, and you see you have something in your teeth, and they didn't mention it? And it's been an hour? Everybody's had this where you go, wait a minute, no one told me my zipper was down. I've been, I like, did a whole work day once in an office full of people, and I get home, and I'm like, how long has that been like that? I had meetings, I had, you know. We're good right now. Do you have that friend that would tell you that? The, it doesn't feel good to say this, but you need to know this type of friend. The, this might embarrass you, but this is going to help you kind of friend. On our faith journey, friends are the people who are honest. Because no one likes to be called out. No one likes to be held accountable. No one likes to get, no one likes to get told they're doing something wrong. But we are rationalizing creatures. We've talked about this before. We'll talk about it again. In social psychology, it's known as the uh, fundamental attribution error. Fundamental attribution error, which is to say that I grant myself best intentions, but I don't grant them to you. So if, if I get in a, an accident, a, a car accident, the fundamental attribution error says if I rear-end somebody, I meant well, it's not my fault, I got distracted, these things happen. If somebody rear-ends me, they're a jerk and we're going to sue them. Because they, they're evil. They, they hit me. And so when we tell a lie and get caught, well, you know, I was in this tight bind and you don't understand. And I was trying to protect people and I really had good intentions. And when someone else tells a lie, man, that person's really, they're something, aren't they? This is important to recognize that we carry this with us. 
this fundamental attribution error because it impacts how we love other people. And it impacts how we see ourselves. If we see everyone else as, you know, maybe malicious, maybe, I don't know, but we always see ourselves with good intentions, then we're going to be out of balance with the world. What we need in those moments is a friend to challenge our perception, to show us our blind spots. Everybody has blind spots, because there's someone in here going, well, I think I know myself. I don't have blind spots. They wouldn't be called blind spots if they weren't blind to you, right? Everyone has blind spots. If you could see them, they wouldn't be blind. And I would argue that the truest mirror you have, some people are like, I'm good, I'm good. I got a mirror, I know myself, I'm self-aware, I read this book, I got this thing, I got a journal, I'm good. The truest mirror is an honest friend. There are things you cannot see about yourself that your friend can see, and the best mirror you'll ever run into, the best check of yourself you can ever have is someone who's willing to be honest with you. Some people go, well, I have a gift of mercy, so I just kind of let those things go. And I would say, no, mercy is helping someone avoid the pain, not just hoping the pain goes away. Letting someone go back to work with finishing their teeth is not mercy, it's mean. If we're honest, it's cowardice to preserve our own comfort. And so when we look at what this friendship looks like in a biblical sense, we have to run against comfort, which tells us just lean back and don't stress. And recognize that as a form of of cowardly behavior. It's easier for me not to tell you what's wrong than it is for me to jump into your life and risk that relationship a little bit, to be honest. Because it's not just little things. It's a big deal. It's a big deal when your married friend's eyes linger on that other person just a minute too long. It's a big deal when you hear a friend talk about their spouse or their boss or another friend with contempt and you just sort of back away. It's a big deal when a glass of wine with dinner becomes a bottle of wine afterwards. These are little shifts, but it's a big deal and we're in people's lives and we're walking with people and we're going, it's hard. It's hard to call someone out. It's hard to mention it in love. It's hard to have the trust and the respect to to do that for others. But that's what friendship is. That's what brotherhood is. That's what being on a team is. That's that's getting together and doing this thing together. And even as the scripture says, the wound from a friend can be trusted. It's willing to wound you because I know it will help you. We need each other to be better. I'm going to say we need each other to be our best. It requires that we cultivate relationships that are real, though. call out Coach Huger. I was thinking about him. You go to a basketball game, you'll hear no shortage of Coach Huger telling somebody what they did wrong. And as they come back to the huddle, timeout has been called, the music starts to play, and you see him, he'll get into somebody. And you'll see it. You go, yeah, he didn't fight through that screen, or yeah, he's been lazy, he didn't get back, or whatever it is. You're you're watching, you're going, oh, I I know what he's telling him. And, And as somebody on the other side of that doesn't feel good, It doesn't feel good to be told you were lazy. It doesn't feel good to be told that that you didn't have your your stuff in order, that you cost us something. But the character of the person is not what do you do. It's what do you do in response to when you're called out on what you didn't do, right? The character that we possess is really what happens when someone tells you, hey, man, you're off course in this. When someone tells you, look, you're 
you don't see this. I might be a blind spot. I might be crossing the line here, but this is a thing in your life, and, and I, just, I just feel like I'm supposed to tell you this, and uh, you know I love you, and so here it is. When you hear that, the character you contain is shown. Because when we're defensive, we're going, no, I'm good, thanks, see ya. And then that's, that's the limit of our growth. That's as far as we go. When we're willing to accept that, when our hearts are soft to that, when we're going, okay, this person loves me, trusts me, and they wouldn't get on to me unless there was something there, then we grow. Then we get better. Being a pastor is odd because by the time someone comes to see me, by the time someone's sitting in my office, what they're actually asking for is brutal honesty. In relationship, and you're, you're knowing this in the moment, a lot of people are, are asking you how they're doing. Hey, can you just tell me how I'm doing in my life? And what they're fishing for is a compliment. Like, re- don't really tell me. Just make me feel better. It's been a rough week. By the time they're sitting in my office, they're actually asking for brutal honesty. And so when I casually uh, observe, after hearing a story that someone is dealing with uh, lust or pride or resentment or unforgiveness or addiction or whatever the thing is that, that p- comes out of the story, I'm told, I'm like, hey, you know what? This sounds like that. There's this look that people get in their eyes. And everybody has a version of it, because I've seen it so many times in so many different people. There's a look that people get in their eyes that say, I knew it. Why didn't anybody tell me? It's this look of isolation and sadness and admission all at once that goes, yeah, somewhere within me, I knew that. And I had to come to you to tell me. Anybody ever see uh, the, the Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote cartoons? I'm, or, I'm dating myself because cartoons aren't a thing anymore. My kids haven't seen that. Um, are those on Netflix? No. So you remember when, when the coyote was chasing the Roadrunner, there would always be some calamity that, that comes down the, the way. But one of my favorite, I guess probably my favorite one by far, over the anvil and the exploding bird seed and all those things, is when they were, the, the, the coyote would chase the Roadrunner, and then the Roadrunner would do like a fast turn right at the edge of a cliff, and the coyote would miss the turn, right? And he would just run all the way off the cliff. And then the, the screen would kind of pause there. And the coyote would look around. And there's just, he's, he's over. He's off. The cliff is, and he starts, you know, either scrambling to get back and he doesn't get it done. Or my favorite is when he just recognized that he was beaten. And since the coyote never talked, he would hold up a sign and it just said, help. And then he would disappear out the bottom of your screen. That's the look that people have. That's the look of our brothers and sisters when we're not willing to tell them they're headed over the cliff. It's too late when they're holding up the help sign and they're about to crash. That's too late. They know it at that point. We have to be involved in people's lives. We have to be family for each other in such a way that before they get to missing the turn, we say, hey, be careful. Jesus promised that this way of life would not be easy. In order to walk more like him every day, we need people to help us along the way because true friendship requires honesty, and if we're honest about it, it creates friction. Right? This is not an easy thing to do. It creates friction. Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. You know what this is? This is about friction, ultimately. Friction makes the, the sword sharp. Friction makes the knife sharp. If you take a dull blade and you grind it, it returns to sharpness. Ignoring the knife doesn't make it sharper. Well, it'll figure itself out. That's a problem that it's pretty dull these days, but if you leave it in that drawer long enough and just don't mess with it, just let it kind of be, it'll work itself out. That doesn't work. The knife never gets sharper. Telling the knife that it is sharp, even when it isn't, you know what? You are a sharp knife, aren't you? You're so great. 
people have misread you. I know you couldn't cut through, you know, that slice of white bread, but you're so sharp. Just believe in yourself. Does that make the knife sharper? No. Friction sharpens the knife. The knife is sharpened when it's rubbed against a source of friction. And it gets rid of the dullness and it brings back that sharpness. We hate friction. Everything in our lives is designed to reduce friction. We have drive through everything. We have instant everything. Let's see if you can go all the way back in the time machine with me. Do you remember when you had an iPhone that you had to put a code into to get in? Oh, this is my four-digit code. Then it was a six-digit code. And then they figured it out, right? So now if you buy an iPhone, you just need a thumbprint. Because friction, you know, I, I can't be bothered to put four digits in, so I'm just going to put my thumb on it. And then guess what just got released? Because the thumbprint is way too much friction in life. That's way too long to wait to open your phone. The new phone coming out just recognizes your face and opens. You don't have to do anything. So you just hold the thing up and it's just, oh, there you are, I know you. And we're just, we're reducing friction everywhere we go. You can see it in every line of every business in America. How can we create less friction to get more to the consumer faster? We hate friction. Real friendship, real relationship requires friction if we're going to make each other better. It challenges, it encourages. The beauty of true friendship, the beauty of, of this type of friction is that if, if you're trusted and you're loved and you're rooted in a mutual respect, you can tell somebody anything and they'll receive it. The reality is we need friction more than we know. How do you slow down a car going 80 miles an hour? Friction. When the brakes get engaged, it creates friction and the wheels slow to a stop. So when somebody's careening out of control, the way we help them get under control is friction. When somebody's stuck, there are plenty of us in that spot. When somebody can't go anywhere, we're, we're stuck, we're in a rut, we just, we don't know why, how life got this way, but I don't know how to go anywhere. I'm stuck. How do we get someone going? Friction. It's not until the rubber grabs the asphalt that the car starts to move. You've all tried to drive on ice. How does that work? There's no friction. You can't go anywhere. You never get started. Friction slows us down, controls us. Friction speeds us up and it encourages us. It, requ- it is required in relationship. And yet we hate it. So don't just meet someone today. Hey, good to meet you. What's your name? And then just call them out. That's not how this works, right? There's always somebody. There's always somebody. I'm going to get an email this week on like Thursday. Be like, hey, why'd you preach that? Because this person I just met said I was stupid. And I, I don't know. It just happens. Don't do that. Build the relationship as you build the relationship and you grow in trust. Recognize that that friction is not a sign that something's wrong in your relationship. Friction is a sign that something's right. You can sharpen each other. You can push each other. You can encourage each other. Even wound each other in love because to love relentlessly is to love honestly who does that for you who are you willing to do it for true friendship requires honesty second true friendship requires fight proverbs seventeen seventeen: a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity i call these hospital people If you've been through something tragic or traumatic in your life, who are the people who just show up? Like when times get rough, they don't show up to get in on the drama. 
but they're just ready. They're just there. These are the kind of people that are content to say that they're waiting for you. They, you get a text, we're in, the, we're in the hospital waiting room just if you need us. Those are rare kind of people. Those are hospital people. People who know there's nothing they can do, but they, they just want to be present. So you know you're not going through adversity alone. So you know you're not walking through tragedy alone. Adversity is the amygdala of relationship. The amygdala is the part of your brain that, that controls fear responses, the fight or flight. Adversity lights this up. Every time we run into any adversity, we have two options. It's fight or flight. And that's a false dichotomy because somewhere in between there's other options. But you're going one of the two directions to some degree. A friend stands in and fights for you. When adversity comes, a friend stands in and fights. If you are a friend, you know who your real friends are by who you're willing to stand in and fight for. Because flight is easier, if we're honest, right? I'm just going to wait till that dies down. Let's give them some space. That's flight. And sometimes you need to give people space, and this is not relationship prescription, but there's, there, there's times for all of them. But fight says, I'm going to give you space, but I'm going to be waiting right on your porch. So the second you need me, I'm here. And if you never need me, doesn't hurt my feelings. I was here just to be here. My sister died in 2013. I know who was there in the days that followed. I don't remember much. Ask my wife. I have a terrible memory. I put things in my phone that second. Otherwise, I'll never go to that appointment. I'm just, I'm not good with um, life, maybe. I don't know. But I remember my sister in, her ho- in a hospital room in 2013. I can look around the room. I can see every single face that was there. I can go out to the waiting room of the ICU, and I can see every single face that was there. And they don't get special credit because they happen to live closer to the hospital. Or they heard the news first or whatever. But there's a metaphor in that that we, we have this thing in us. We know who's there for us when something goes wrong. And we also know that if we've been those people for others, it's not easy. As a pastor, you get trained how to make a hospital visit. They're never easy. Stop, stop this appointment or this, this random maintenance, you know, organizational thing you're doing, and then walk into somebody's greatest tragedy. That's not easy. I recognize that. That's heavy and it's hard. But it's so required. To love at all times is to do so when it's not easy. To love at all times is to love at our lowest point. To love at all times is to love when others leave. So do a diagnostic then today. Do you want to know who your friends are? Who loves you when it's not easy? Who loves you at your lowest point? Who loves you when it would be easier to leave? Those are your friends. Recognize this as a friend. Fight can cost you dearly. To fight for someone, to be, to be in the arena with them in that moment, that can cost you. Friendship requires loyalty, and sometimes loyalty requires sacrifice, which is our third thing. True friendship requires sacrifice. John fifteen twelve. So this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is Jesus talking. Jesus says, greater love is no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. What does that mean? What does it mean to love? Jesus says, to love someone is to lay your life down for them. Jesus is talking about himself. He's foreshadowing what's about to happen. He's looking at his friends who don't get it yet. His friends don't know that he's going to take on the cross, that he's going to die on their behalf. They don't get it. 
And so he just keeps giving them crumbs going, look, guys, there's no greater love than someone who would give their life for their friends. You're my friends. And his life, the life of Christ, the life we follow, the life we believe in, the life that holds our salvation is a constant, consistent call to love like that, to sacrificial love. Maybe the most common advice I give to people in pastoral counseling is they'll lay their whole problem out and I will say, I got just the answer. And they'll go, okay, I'm ready. And they're hoping, you know, for just done. And I say, you're going to have to lay down and die. To which the response is always, what? Because what's in it for me kills a relationship. What about my feelings kills a relationship. What about my needs kills a relationship. Those things are all killers in conflict. What about me? Whereas the advice I always give people is lay down and die. Because relationship has become transactional. Really sneaky in the way it's happened over the years. It's always been that to some degree, even more so now. In exchange for my time, you'll make me feel good. In exchange for my effort, you'll owe me something. In exchange for uh, my help, you'll help me. You'll approve of me. If our relationship is based on what it will return us, that's not true friendship. Lay down and die isn't a transactional thing to do in the sense that it can't be repaid. When Christ takes on the cross, there's no repayment for that. It's just done. When Jesus says, I'm giving my life for your benefit, it's done. I was sitting with a, oh, i got to make him anonymous. I was sitting with some folks, <laughs> not that recently, but recent enough. Sitting with some folks, and they were having a, a big, one of the, this couple was having a big problem with the other one, their in-laws, right? The other one's family was just not doing real well. And the one who was being wounded by the in-laws had every right to be hurt. Every right to feel wounded, every right to feel um, just disgusted by what was going on. And I'm hearing half the story, but I can read between it. I'm going, yeah, no, this is not okay. And the question of me is, well, what, what, what do we do? Because this is not, this can't keep going because this is not going to end well if it goes like this. And so, you know, kind of the question was, how do I make my point? How do I kind of do, do the Jesus thing, but can I stab them a little bit when I do it? Because they've hurt me, and it's only fair that they hurt. And they need to know how much they hurt me, and I'm going to really tell them. I sat there, and I, I heard it all out, and I said, well, here's my advice. Lay down and die. They said, we don't, we don't really like or get that advice. And I said, you have to lay down your right to be mad it has to die. You have to lay down your right to be offended. It has to die. You have to lay down your agenda in this relationship. It has to die. You have to lay down your pride here. It has to die. And only then can you go in to your in-laws, and then you need to tell them, not only is all that stuff dead, you don't have to tell them that. You need to tell them what you've done wrong. You need to tell them how you failed them, how you've been judging them. You need to tell them. You just need to lay it out. This is, this is who I am. This is what I've done. And then you just, like, I said, as, as much as you can think of it metaphorically, I said, you may just have to do it physically. Just lay down and die in front of them. Because no one's going to kick you when you're laying down and dying in front of them. It's disarming. 
It changes the dynamic in the room. All that's true psychologically, but there's something biblically important about it. I saw him a few weeks later. Met this couple. I said, well, how did it go? They said, weirdest thing ever. They just started hugging me. And I think everything's better. I said, say it again. Because, yeah, I mean, I, I, I laid down and died in front of these people. And, and then I told them how I'd failed them and how this, you know, I, I didn't live up to my end of the bargain. And, and I didn't even refer to any of the stuff they did. I just said, you know what, this is not about me and we need to be right. And, and so here I am and this is what I've done and, and we need to be right together. And I'm, I'm sorry for what I've done. I said, they just started hugging me. It all worked out. I said, well, it's not always that clean, but I'm really glad it worked. When you and I ran across Christ, when this concept that there was a perfect son of God who showed up, and for you and for me, for all the stuff I had done that I couldn't pay back, for all the sins, all the thoughts, all the... When he lays down and dies, what's our only response? It's disarming. It's humbling. And if you're anything like me, when you were first presented with that truth and the Holy Spirit kind of sweeps through you and you go, whoa, that's not just like a story or a myth or a religion. That's the thing. You have no choice. You hug that truth. Jesus lays down and dies and the whole of sin is disarmed. The whole of evil is disarmed. The whole of all that swims that direction is gone. And all that comes back is the wholeness. Lay down and die is not my great advice. Jesus said, lay down your life. It drove him to pain and torture. It drove him to the cross, to the fear and anxiety of full separation from God. That wasn't a good deal for Jesus. We got freedom. He got death. And yet he calls us friends and in his life, and his resurrection, we have life. And so he calls us to live this life that we only get one of. Live it to the fullest. Live it like you mean it. Live it like you're trying. Live it intentionally. Because if you're not careful, you wake up and you're accidentally somewhere you never intended to be. And Jesus is saying, you get one of these, live it like this. And it's counterintuitive, and it doesn't make sense. And when you try it the first time, it's going to feel weird. And then you'll wake up one day, and you'll go, whoa. Lay down and die is like really good advice. Lay down your agenda. Lay down your needs. Lay down your hurts. Lay down your goals. Lay down your life. And in doing so, you will experience joy you've never imagined. finished with this we've lived here long enough that we are not new here anymore for a long time we would say we're new well, we're new here we're, we're from texas and this is new to us once you have established traditions you can't say you're new anymore and so we're no longer new this is our second fall or winter or whatever godforsaken thing this is but i now know with our traditions that every second sunday in october i will lay down and die because every second Sunday in October, there's this thing in Grand Rapids called the Apple Butter Festival. Among the 412,000 things that I listed this week that I would like to do with Sunday afternoon, I never got to attend an Apple Butter Craft Festival. It just, I never wrote it down. 
crushing crowds and assorted crafts. Pumpkins made out of burlap with faces painted on. These are the, this is my jam, you know? Hey, what's not to like? Guess what? Don't tell anyone? We went this year. It was our second time to go. One, it was my idea. I was asking about it. Two, I had incredible joy in going. Because I got to see my best friend light up. Because my wife loves that stuff. Apple butter? Burlap pumpkins? What I learned is that laying down and dying, my agenda for that day was not that. Finishing a master's, got plenty to do. Maybe I want to watch sports on occasion. I don't know. Anything. I got a list. That brings me deeper joy than anything else on the list. Because the thing about sacrifice is that it almost always brings a deeper joy than that which we gave up. When you sacrifice for someone else, the reward is almost always a joy greater and deeper than that thing that you gave up. When you sacrifice for a friend, when you sacrifice for a teammate, when you sacrifice for someone else, and the greater good is accomplished, you almost always can look back and go, I gave up that for this. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. We don't sacrifice for the joy set before us because we don't realize that sacrifice is often the gate to the joy set before us. Jesus sacrificed. Scripture says, for the joy set before him. He knew what was coming, that by laying down his life, we'd be here praising him with him in relationship with him. He knew. We don't sacrifice for the joy set before us because we don't realize that sacrifice is often the gate to that joy. In Christ, we see the ultimate picture of that. So his commandment, to live his life for friends, to lay down your lives for each other, to serve in mutual submission, to live with another's first mentality, to live honestly, to live with friction. His challenge to us includes the implication that there is a joy on the other side of that type of life. We were designed for friendship. And so in a series about intentionality, I will close with this. If you are cultivating anything, crops, relationships, whatever. To cultivate them means you work them. And to work them well means to work them with intentionality. So the question is, who are you intentionally growing with along the journey? Who are you intentionally creating friction with so as to make them better? Who are you intentionally sacrificing for to see them made whole? And who's doing that for you? Do they know it? If not, ask them. Would you be that person that walks shoulder to shoulder with me? Could we do this together? And then pursue. Pursue honesty, a willingness to fight for each other, with each other, to make each other stronger, and pursue sacrifice that you might lay down your life for the joy set before you. We're going to continue our service with communion which is our weekly remembrance. Jesus set it up in his time that when you eat of the bread and you drink of the cup, remember me. Just, just remember what I'm going to do for you. It was set up that the bread would represent his body that was given for us, and the, the cup, the juice, the wine would represent his blood that was, that was spilled for us, that we would be whole and free. And so what we do around here is once a week, 
We have the bread in the, in the cup. And so we take the bread and we dip it in the cup as a way to remember in that moment, like a metronome, this rhythmic, weekly, yeah, I remember. I'm not here because of me. I'm not here because I'm good enough. I'm not here because I tried enough. I'm here because you have grace and you saved me because you gave your life for me. That's why I'm here. It's our, our weekly chance to remember, to be reminded, and then to take that and take a deep breath and figure out how we extend it. And so if you're a guest with us, if you're new with us, and that's something that you're not used to, you're not comfortable with that, you don't come from a tradition that that happens, just know that you are totally free to do what you want in this place. You are in the right place if you are skeptical, if you are seeking, if you just don't know yet. That's the right place to be. Don't feel any pressure to join in this list, but if you are a follower of Christ and you want to take this moment with us to remember, I would encourage you as the band comes up and we play and we worship together that you would worship in that way. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are amazing when we stop to think about it. You've sent your son. You called us friends. And you help us redefine what that means. God, it is not the shallow thing of our culture, but we recognize friendship is sacrifice. Help us to be a people that are a family for each other that would uh, be willing to lay down and die for each other, that we'd be willing to put our agendas aside and our, our own personal pride aside, that we would work for each other, that we would fight for each other, that we would grow with each other. God, make us a people that care enough about each other that we'd be willing to risk ourselves for it. And then make us a people that because of your son and the way he reached out to us, may we be a people that would, that would be willing to risk to reach out to those around us, that this city, that this community would know that we follow you, not because we shouted at him, but because we display you plainly with our lives. Help us be friends to those on the outside. Help us be friends to those who are vulnerable. Help us be friends to those on the margins as we consider what it means to be a church for you. And then in the weeks to come, as we consider what it means to be a church for this city, a church for BG, God, challenge us to be friends with each other so that we might go out in your richness and be friends with others. God, we love you. We thank you for your son as we remember that our salvation is only in him. We pray in his name. Amen.